Thomas Jefferson. He was one of the founding fathers of the United States and their third president. He called himself a Christian and he liked what he saw as the moral teachings of Jesus. But he was a naturalist. He didn't believe in the supernatural. And so to support his own views, he took the New Testament and he literally cut out all the bits of the, of the New Testament that he didn't like. In his case, it was the miracles of Jesus, the references to his deity, any mention of angels or prophecy or the resurrection. He cut it all out. Then he pasted together all the bits that were left. I don't know how much was left, but he pasted it all together. And he compiled them in what is known uh, as the Jefferson Bible. Now, I hope none of us are tempted to do that with our Bibles. We want to read and understand and live out all of the Bible. This is one of the reasons why on Sundays we usually work consecutively through books of the Bible. There are lots of really good ways to study the Bible, of course. Sometimes you can go through the life of one of the Bible characters, and we've done that in church, or we've focused on a topic or a theme from a different, a variety of different scriptures, and all of those ways can be really useful. But I think preaching through a book of the Bible can be especially useful for a number of reasons. Hopefully it helps us to ground all that we teach really in the scriptures, Also, it opens up that book so that maybe when we read it again another time, that it will really speak into our hearts in our own personal reading. And it also helps us to interpret it properly. Because we're reading these verses, these chapters, in their original context. And that's one of the keys to understanding and interpreting the Bible correctly. But there's another reason. When the Apostle Paul met with the elders of the church of Ephesus, he sat... He said that during the two and a half years that he'd been with them, he said this, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now he didn't mean that he preached on every verse of the scriptures. That would have been impossible. But he, mean, he meant that he'd teached, he taught God's word comprehensively. He hadn't missed out the difficult passages. He hadn't dodged the controversial bits. Instead, he'd sought to teach everything that the Bible taught, so that the believers in that church would have a full understanding of God's truth. And that's what we're trying to do as we go through the books within the Bible. I don't just want to pick out on our favourite verses, or the easy to understand parts. I don't want us to dodge the challenging bits. Or the uncomfortable truths. I want us to preach through all of the truth of the Bible. Because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. We believe that all of the Bible is valuable. And all of the Bible is God's word. But all of this creates a problem for us this morning. We're going through John's Gospel, as most of you know. 
And so our next passage is John chapter 7, verse 53 down to to chapter 8, verse 11. It's a well-known and well-loved story about Jesus. And what it teaches isn't isn't inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. But the problem is, and don't run away when I say this, the problem is that most Bible scholars are really sure that this is actually not part of the gospel that John wrote. So the question is, what should we do with this? I'd said don't run away and then hear Caleb running away. Sorry, Caleb. So what should we do with this passage that isn't part of God's word? Well, should we just ignore this problem and treat it like the rest of the Bible because it's in there? Or should we skip past this part and pretend that problem section didn't uh, doesn't exist? Maybe some of you wouldn't even, even notice if I just skipped to the next bit and didn't deal with it. Or could we actually learn something from this problem that can encourage us to be more confident with the Bible that we have? So I'm going to try and do the latter of that this morning. But let's first read this section so we know what we're talking about. Uh, and then we can go on and think about it. So it's John chapter 7, verse 53. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared to the, again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stood down and went wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said, declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now I'm sure many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in the language of the Greek language. But of course we don't have any of those original manuscripts today. We don't have John's Gospel written by the pen of John. But what we have are carefully copied manuscripts, handwritten, and then were distributed throughout the church across the world. And there are literally thousands of these ancient manuscripts. Now with most of this famous uh, ancient literature, only a few manuscripts remain. And only manuscripts from many centuries after the original was written. So for example, there's Caesar's, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, and there's only ten manuscripts of that left over, That was written about 50 BC, 
And these date to around a thousand years later, after the originals were written. Then there's also 20 manuscripts of Tacitus' Annals. That was written about 100 AD. And those manuscripts also date to about a thousand years after the originals were written. But when it comes to the New Testament, which was written between 50 and 100 AD, there's over 5,000 copies of those ancient Greek manuscripts. Some of these contain the New Testament, uh, most of the New Testament, and they date to only about 200 years after the Old Testament was completed. And then there are also fragments, parts of the New Testament, the Greek language, in the Greek language, that date to only about 50 years after the New Testament was completed. So there are all these Greek manuscripts, and they're all over the world. In fact, some of them are in Dublin, in the Chester Beatty Library, if you want to go up and see them. Now, in addition to all those thousands of ancient manuscripts written in the Greek language, there's also a load of them written in other languages that have been translated into them. Into Syriac, in Latin, and Coptic, for example. Then there's over 30,000 quotations from the New Testament that were written in letters and and pamphlets written by the the early church fathers around the 2nd and the 3rd century. They're basically quoting from or kind of paraphrasing what was written in the New Testament. And so this is what a scholar, a guy called F.F. Bruce, This is what he states. There is nobody of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. You can tell he's a scholar because he uses words that we don't usually use. But basically he's saying that we can be incredibly confident that what we have in our hands is what was written by the New Testament authors. So there's all this wealth of evidence to say that what we have is a translation of what was written by these authors. But there are some problems with having just so many manuscripts. Because the people who copied these manuscripts, they did an incredibly good job. They were incredibly careful in the world, because they knew that they were handling God's word. But like any human being, their work was not perfect. Sometimes small scribal errors crept into their copies. And so these thousands of manuscripts don't agree 100%. There are what's called textual variations between these. Now, most of them are obvious mistakes like spelling or grammar errors, or the order of the words are just changed round. Only about 5% of them have any impact on the meaning of the text at all. But because there are so many manuscripts, what scholars can do is they can compare all the various manuscripts and just recognise those variations that are artefacts or that are errors that have crept into the later manuscripts that weren't there in the originals or the earlier ones. And so they can work out with a great deal of certainty what the original reading of the texts 
where. But what is really important to remember in all of this is that with all of these variations and all of these scribal errors and all of these artefacts that none of them influence a central doctrine of Christianity. We're not saying that there are Greek manuscripts that absolutely change what people could believe about Jesus or about the way to trust in him or any other aspect of what it means to believe in God. No biblical truth about who Jesus is or what he accomplished or what we need to do in order to be right with God is unclear because of these variations. They're just minor, minor errors that have crept in. So with all this work of thousands of ancient manuscripts, that doesn't actually shake, it doesn't need to shake our confidence in the Bible. In fact, it does the opposite. I don't know if you've heard people say things like, oh yeah, the Bible, that, the New Testament, that was just written 300, 400 AD by the, the, the Roman Catholic Church that just made it up. It was, just, it was just compiled by them and then they just put those people's names on it afterwards. Or, no, the Bible, over the years, the Bible has been changed again and again and again. So you really can't believe what you're reading. In fact, that's one of the claims, or was one of the claims of Muhammad. The, the prophet of, of Islam. He claimed that the, the New Testament had been corrupted over the years. But we know that's not the case because this Greek manuscript and other language manuscript evidence proves that. That even although this book is 2,000 years old, even though it has been examined and scrutinised by scholars, even though it has been attacked and ridiculed by critics, it has stood the test of time. We can be certain that when we're reading the Bible, we are reading a translation, a really good translation of the inspired word of God that was written by the biblical authors. So when we read John, for example, we can be sure that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So don't be worried about those things. When you actually look into it, when you actually look at the evidence, it encourages us that we can trust God's word that we have in our hands today. But all of that doesn't apply with this passage that we're looking at this morning. Because although this passage from verse 53 of chapter 7 down to verse 11 of chapter 8, although it's been included in many versions of the New Testaments down through the years, the evidence is really clear that this is not part of John's original gospel. This evidence includes, if you're interested, the early manuscripts. This passage was not included in any John's gospel written before the 5th century. Any of the manuscripts. When it does show up in later manuscripts, it shows up in four different places in John's gospel. And also one time in Luke's gospel. Almost as if they were trying to find where it would fit in. And none of the early church fathers from the 2nd, 3rd century who wrote commentaries on John's Gospel included this passage. And then also the style and the vocabulary that's used in this passage doesn't match any of the rest of John's writings. 
And so most New Testament scholars are absolutely sure that the evidence is overwhelming that this is not part of the gospel that John actually wrote. The rest is, but this isn't. It's an artifact that was inserted later on. A bit like what we saw way back in John chapter 5. Do you remember verse 4 of John chapter 5? Talking about the angel coming down and stirring the water. Remember when we were talking about that? That was just an, an artifact, an added verse that was put in to try and explain what was going on in their minds. So this passage that we read is not part of John's gospel. It's not God's inspired word. And so we shouldn't recognise it or treat it like scripture. We're not going to build our faith on this little passage. But let's be really clear. That's not because there's anything unbiblical in what this passage teaches. It's not because this passage stands in contrast and contradiction with all the rest of John's Gospel or whatever. In fact, some people see biblical truth so clearly presented in this, this passage that they think that this passage actually talks about an incident that actually happened in Jesus' life. A lot of people would read it and say, yes, it's not part of John's Gospel, but I think it is a a, a real event that happened in the life of Jesus. Maybe it was an oral tradition that was passed on down through the centuries, and then eventually it was written in and inserted into John's Gospel. Now, of course, there isn't any evidence to prove that, because you can't have evidence of an oral tradition. So we can't know that for certain. But what we can say is that this passage illustrates a number of truths about Jesus and his ministry that is found elsewhere in the Gospel. This story is not the inspired word of God, but it does point to truths that we do find in the inspired word of God. It's like an illustration of biblical truth. So, for example, in this story we can see the the wisdom of Jesus illustrated. In this story, the incident arose because the teacher of the law and the Pharisees set a trap for Jesus. They brought a woman before him and said this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? This was a clever trap. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, in the law it says, If a man was found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. He must purge the evil from Israel. Now remember, in the Old Testament law, it was for the people of Israel at that time. It's not for us, so don't take that truth and apply it today. Okay? The nation of Israel under the Old Covenant was supposed to be holy and set apart for God as a nation. And that brought amazing privileges for those who lived in that nation, but also serious responsibilities. And so if people refused to accept these these responsibilities, the consequences were also serious. But this, this, this question would have put Jesus in a really difficult situation if it happened. Because if he had refused to go along with this woman's execution then this would confirm to the religious leaders that Jesus was a lawbreaker. He was a heretic. 
And they were, they were right to reject him. Because how could anybody go against the law? But if he agreed with stoning this woman, not only would this woman be killed, but those who had been drawn to him because of his mercy and his forgiveness would have been pushed away. And his own life would have been under threat. Because the Roman authorities, they claimed that they and they alone had the right to kill or to execute anybody. So to actually to stone this woman would have been an act of rebellion against the Roman authorities. And I think it's a very similar situation that we do find in the Bible in Luke chapter 20. When the teacher of the law and the, the chief priest sent spies who asked Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, you were kind of caught both ways. Because if you said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then you were siding with the Roman and the enemies. If you said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, you'd be seen as a revolutionary, a rebel within the Roman government. And so you'd be under, you'd be in threat of danger. Now in that situation, Jesus didn't answer that question directly. Instead, he silenced his critics with this amazing answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. These Roman coins, they have the Caesar's inscription and this head on it. So give, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But you make sure that you give to God what belongs to God. Amazing answer, expressing such amazing wisdom. And we see that kind of wisdom expressed also in this story, don't we? Initially, Jesus didn't say anything when they came and brought this woman in front of him. He just wrote on the ground. And people have lost days and weeks trying to work out what Jesus wrote on the ground. Please don't go there. Waste of time. And then he said, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down to write on the ground again. And as he did this, the story says that those who began, who heard, began to go away one at a time. Jesus had again responded to his critics with great wisdom to avoid this trap and to silence his critics. It's an illustration of Jesus' wisdom. And this is what we saw last week. Remember when the guards, they were sent to arrest Jesus and bring him back? And they came back empty-handed because he said no one ever spoke the way this man does. But what could we take from the fact that Jesus said in this story, if anyone is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. Should we believe that in order to apply the law, judges had to be sinless? Had to be perfect. Now that wouldn't make sense, would it? Because that would absolutely be abolish every legal system within the world. Because there isn't any judge on this earth today who is sinless. So what, is, what did Jesus mean by this in this story? Well, I think this story is presenting Jesus as expressing his authority in challenging these men to look at themselves first of all, before they dealt with this woman. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, when he said, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck 
out of your brother's eye. First take that plank out of your own eye. First deal with your own issues, your own problems, your own sin, before you go and try and fix somebody else. So yes, this woman was guilty before God, but so are they. In this this story, they were acting dishonestly. They were trying to use this situation. They were trying to use this woman in this terrible situation. They were trying to use her as a trap for Jesus. They were being deceptive. They were being dishonest. They were also acting unjustly in prosecuting this woman, but not the man who she'd been with. And obviously, if she'd been caught in the act of adultery, it takes two. And that man would have equally been guilty. They were also acting without mercy. But at the same time, depending on God's mercy for them. This is what Jesus challenged the Pharisees to do in Matthew chapter 9. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees thought of themselves as law keepers. Yet they'd rejected the more important matters of the law. They'd focused on the tiny details, even to the level of taking a tithe, a tenth of their, their spices and their herbs, and giving that to God. And yet they'd missed the major part of the law. The matters of mercy and justice and faithfulness. So this story is a reminder of that. The authority of Jesus. And to remind us what God is actually looking for in our lives. In this story these men left because Jesus exposed their sin and their misuse of the law. Because the New Testament is absolutely clear what the law was supposed to be all about. As Paul says, the entire law is summed up in this single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. And in acting in this way, none of those people were expressing that love. But how would Jesus respond to that, that woman caught in adultery? Those who are sinless, you cast the first stone. Well, Jesus is sinless. So he could rightly judge her and condemn her and punish her. But in this story, Jesus' words were, neither do I condemn you. Now some people say, well that's Jesus accepting everybody just as they are and being soft on sin and it doesn't matter what you've done, then that's okay. That's not the case at all. The Bible is clear that marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer And the sexually immoral. That's Hebrews chapter 13. So Jesus would not condone this woman's sexual immorality. He would not minimise the sanctity of marriage. He wouldn't say, oh well it doesn't matter as long as it's consensual then it's okay. He would not say that. In fact, one day he's coming back to judge all those who are still in their sins. Instead, this story illustrates Jesus' undeserved and unconditional grace to sinners. We know that Jesus will one day come and judge the world, but for now, 
For now, he offers to forgive the guilty. To restore the rebel. And to free all those who are in bondage to sin. This is why Jesus came. The Bible is clear about that. Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to, when his first coming, to come and to judge and to punish and to condemn. He came to rescue. And he came to rescue even although it cost him such a great cost, such a great price. Sinners like this woman can be forgiven for one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus took that sin and paid for it in full on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus would not cover up that sin, brush it under the carpet, say it doesn't matter, oh it's okay, no problem. But he would have been willing to forgive that sin because he paid for it completely on the cross. Then finally, the story illustrates how grace transforms people's lives. In this story, Jesus is reported as saying, go now and leave your life of sin. The forgiveness that was offered to her was not an excuse just to go and continue to sin you're forgiven so you can just go back and do that again and again rather the forgiveness was the freedom to live a brand new life and this is the transforming grace of Jesus so listen to what Pilate wrote to Titus Paul sorry wrote to Titus he said the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God teaches us to say no to that ungodliness and worldly passions. So we're not called to live for Jesus out of fear or punishment or out of guilt or condemnation Or a desperate attempt to try and make ourselves be right before God. That is not supposed to be the motivation in our lives. Instead we're called to live for Jesus. In the freedom and the joy and the gratitude and the wonder of the experience of God's amazing grace in our lives. Because we are forgiven, then we are free to live for Jesus. So let's just try and wrap this up this morning. I hope this morning we'll be able to understand why this passage doesn't really belong in God's Word. We're not accepting it. Not because we don't like it like Thomas Jefferson did. We're not trying to cut it out of the Bible because it doesn't fit with our theology. But we're not accepting it because it never belonged there in the first place. It never was God's Word, so we're not going to accept it as God's Word. But at the same time, I hope you've realised that the principles that this story illustrates, the principles of Jesus' wisdom and Jesus' authority, 
and Jesus' grace and his, the transforming power are true. They are found in God's inspired word. So today, we can stand confidently, not in the words of this passage, but in the truth of God's word. That Jesus did come to save sinners. To forgive those who are guilty. People like you and me. So that we can be set free to live for God. Now and forever.